We acknowledge traditional owners of the lands on which we recorded these episodes and their elders past and present. This is Graduate in the USA, here to help Australian students take advantage of the many opportunities to study at US colleges and universities. Well, hello, my name is Jeff Anderson and I'm an American diplomat. And I'm also the head of public affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Australia. My own educational journey started in a small town in the United States called Bradford, Pennsylvania. It's not too far from Buffalo, New York. And then after high school, I spent a gap year in Germany and then went on to pursue my undergraduate studies at American University, where I studied uh, international relations and economics. After that, like our guest. I was a Fulbright scholar where I spent one year in Chemnitz, Germany. And I say all this because it was really my overseas experience that was really impactful in in shaping my professional career. After I returned from my Fulbright, I almost immediately joined the U.S. Diplomatic Service, and I've been in the Diplomatic Service for over 20 years. And I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Garrett, who is the dean of the very prestigious Marshall School of Business at the equally prestigious University of Southern California in Los Angeles. In our discussion, we're going to hear a little bit about what it's like to be a student at a U.S. institution, and then also talk a little bit about the differences between studying in the United States and Australia. So allow me to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Garrett. So Dr. Garrett is one, he's a distinguished international political economist. Two, he's a LinkedIn influencer. And three, since 2020 has been Dean of the USC Marshall School of Business. But finally, like many people who are listening, he is also Australian. And before his current tenure at USC, Dr. Garrett was also the Dean of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania another one of the top business schools in the United States. And I am sure we're also going to hear a little bit in our conversation about Dr. Garrett's time at Duke University, where he was a Fulbright Scholar and earned his master's and PhD, and probably attended a basketball game from time to time watching the Blue Devils play. So without further delay, Dr. Garrett, welcome. Jeff, it's my pleasure to be with you today. So why don't we dive right in and talk a little bit about why exactly did you decide to pursue your further studies, your graduate education in the United States? So I'd like to pretend, Jeff, that I had a grand plan. I actually didn't have a grand plan, but I can tell you looking back that it coming to the U.S. to do graduate school was the pivotal moment in my professional life without question. I grew up in Canberra. I went to the ANU. I was an athlete when I was a kid. You know, anything with a ball and stick, I was all over. And like many Australians, I think, you know, the nirvana for me would have been to get a Rhodes Scholarship and go to Oxford University in the UK. But I wasn't a good enough athlete to get a Rhodes. And my advisor at the ANU told me, 
this is one of the luckiest days of your life because you can now get a scholarship to go to the U.S. where you'll get a much better education. And, you know, when I look back at, on that, I know he was right because literally only five years after I wasn't good enough to be a Rhodes Scholar, I was back at Oxford University in the U.K. teaching the Rhodes Scholars. And the thing that made all the difference was my graduate education in the U.S. So it, it literally was the turning point moment in my life. And on that graduate education in the United States, uh, I mentioned briefly that I was a Fulbrighter and you also were a Fulbrighter. Can you talk a little bit about why Fulbright and a little bit about what that experience was? So the Fulbright program has been around for, what, 60 or 70 years now, post-World War II. And, and the idea, I thought, was a brilliant one, remains a brilliant one, which was to have two-way connection between the United States and countries all over the world arguing and believing that education was not going to be an, not only an enormous value add to the individuals, but an enormous cultural value add because people would learn so much about the place where they studied. You know this. And certainly for me, it, you know, it, it went full circle. Um, I went back to Australia in 2008 to found an institute on the United States, the U.S. Study Center in Sydney. I had spent a lot of my life explaining the international world to Americans, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my academic life. But then I went back to Australia and I was really, my job was to help people understand the U.S. I, I think that mutual understanding theme was at the core of the Fulbright. So enormous value add for us as individuals, but I think really important in terms of cultural diplomacy too. Yeah, I can also vouch for that in saying that it was one of the most significant experiences uh, in, in my uh academic and, and, and career and actually set the tone for my professional career. So you've, you've been a professor at many different institutions uh, before you have your current position at uh, the University of Southern California. What would you say are some of the key career advantages that international students can gain studying in the United States? I think you have to start with the fact that Higher education in the U.S., I think more than any other country, can transform your life in a generation. Edu education really is, as you know, the way that transformation happens in the U.S. at the personal level and, and more broadly. And as a result, the reason I remain so enthusiastic about being a leader in higher education in America is this incredible one-two punch that... For everybody, with more education, your own life will change. But also on the global stage, you know, American higher education has been a magnet for talented people from all around the world for 150 years. And that can work out in two ways, right? Either somebody can come to the U.S., uh, get a great education, and then, for all intents and purposes, become American, as I have done. But equally, you can come to the U.S., get an education and return home and be, a, be better educated, but also understand more about the U.S. Well, why don't we spend a few minutes now really digging into the differences between U.S. and Australian universities. And maybe we should start a little bit and talking about terminology. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the difference is between a university and a college in the United States? Yeah, so Amer Americans talk about them sort of interchangeably. You know, Australians talk about going to uni. As you know, all Americans talk about going to college. 
that in fact, a college, what it really means is either the undergraduate part of a university. As you know, there are independent colleges. So I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, on the edge of LA, there's a, a fantastic consortium of colleges, the Claremont Colleges, that some of our listeners might have heard of. So college as a freestanding institution means an undergraduate focus. University tends to mean you have graduate programs. Another word that causes some confusion, at least based on my conversations here in Australia, is liberal arts, the liberal arts model. Can you talk a little bit about what the liberal arts model really is? Yeah, so liberal, I think this is very important for people to understand. You know, if you ask me what are the two distinctive features of American college, one would be the fact that it's much more residential than the average Australian uni experience. Uh, but the second would be that it's much more broadly based educationally. And liberal arts really means getting a taste of everything in a university while you're an undergraduate, which can go all the way from the hard sciences to the humanities and everything in between. But I think, you know, it, it's probably also important for people to understand that these days, liberal arts is kind of a it's a bit stylized because now you can actually have much more of a focus in different parts of the university as an undergraduate. So uh, I'm dean of a business school. In America, people still think about business schools largely in terms of MBAs, graduate degrees. But we have 4,000 undergraduate students in our business school uh, at USC, part of 20,000 students, undergraduate students on campus. So liberal arts means breadth. But I think these days in America, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can get the breadth that comes from traditional liberal arts, but you can also focus uh, on business, on engineering, on communication, on the arts. Those things are all very possible these days. So say you're uh, looking at studying in the United States and your long-term goal is to get an MBA or to get a, a JD, a lawyer's degree, advanced lawyers read, would you recommend a liberal arts education or would you recommend that students sort of immediately specialize in business or law? Well, unlike Australia, you cannot do law in the U.S. as an undergraduate, but absolutely you can do business as an undergraduate. And actually, I would say for both my current school, the Marshall School at USC and my former school, the Wharton School at Penn on the East Coast, one of the incredibly attractive things about both of those degrees is that you learn almost all of the MBA stuff as an undergraduate. And as a result, uh, you know, our students are launched when they graduate and, and many of them never have to go back to school to do an MBA. That is not the traditional American model, as you know, where you have a very broad undergraduate education and then you focus in graduate school, and that pathway still exists. But I think it is important for people to know these days that there is this kind of, it's have your cake and eat it too. You can get the best of liberal arts and focus as an undergraduate in a way that might mean you don't need to go back and get a master's degree or higher. Let's turn a little bit now to the admissions process in the United States. And from what I understand uh, in Australia, that admissions to uh, a university is based largely on the final two years of, of study in high school. And then there's a Australian 
tertiary admission rank, I understand, ATAR, if that's, if that's what, I, what yeah, I understand. ATAR, ATAR doesn't sound very good coming out of your American accent, but I understand. Sorry, sorry I need to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> You're right that there is a big difference between the way admissions is done in the U.S. Uh, and the way it's done in Australia, actually, at least on two dimensions. Um, the first one is the one you've already mentioned. Uh, ATAR is a single score based on your last couple of years in high school and the exam results at the end of the, the last year in particular. As you know, in the U.S., admissions is way more holistic. So they're going to look at three or four years at school. They're going to be much more concerned about things you did outside the classroom as opposed to just inside the classroom. So the term these days is holistic admission. And you know, the second big difference with American higher education is that every institution is different and does admissions independently. So you do have to apply to every place separately, and they're all going to have slightly different uh, admissions procedures and protocols. So that's a bit of a hassle, but I think it's well worth it. On that last point, can you talk a little bit about some of the different types of admissions? I know we have early admissions in the United States and, and regular admissions. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. So there are, there are three terms uh, that Americans talk about, early decision, early action, and regular decision. Um, Early action and early decision tend to happen in the American fall, so the spring and early summer in Australia, where you find out if you get in around the 15th of December. And early decision is you apply to a single place, and if you get in, you have to accept it. Uh, it's become increasingly popular in, in America. It's a way to manage enrollment. That's early decision. Then there's something called early action, which is just that an institution will offer you a place early in this December time frame. You don't have to accept it, you just, but it's an offer from the university. And then there's something called regular decision, which is the way it used to work, where the application deadline is in early January and you don't get informed about whether you're admitted until April. So what I, what I would say to everyone listening is, if you're serious about this, you want to look into early decision and early action um, because it's an uh, increasing portion of admissions takes place. I, I should say, since I'm at USC, USC doesn't do either early decision or early action. So we're in the middle of February now in the US and we haven't admitted our class yet for the upcoming academic year. Whereas when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, we were admitting more than half of our class in the early decision window, which, as I said, happens before Christmas time. Excellent. Thank you. And as part of that application process for universities, uh, personal essays are, are a big component. And I understand that some Australian students are often not very comfortable talking about themselves or writing about themselves. Can you, can you give a little bit of advice, a little bit of guidance, how, how potential students might be able to, uh, to do this in the essays? This one is so important culturally, Jeff. You know you've been, spent some time in Australia now. The most important Australian cultural value is to be self-effacing and not talk about yourself. You have to be able to overcome that if you want to live in the United States or get admitted to college. You've got to be able to talk about yourself but equally, you've got to be able to talk about yourself in a way that's truly authentic. What I say to American students is 
Don't do some cookbook kind of essay. Tell something about yourself which is real, authentic, and genuinely going to resonate. So I think for Australians, you're thinking a little bit too much about yourself if you if you're self-aware, self-reflective in these essays. You've got to do it. And by the way, I, w I would say to the Australians, it'll once you do it, it'll feel pretty good. The the self-effacing Australian thing is a really endearing characteristic. But having the freedom to be yourself and talk about yourself, it, it feels pretty good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Graduating the USA with Jeff Anderson and Dr. Jeffrey Garrett. For more information about studying in the USA, search for Education USA Australia in your browser or the episode notes in your podcast app. And could you talk a little bit about what academic expectations are on undergraduate students in the U.S. and what the academic learning experience is like when you're on a U.S. campus as an undergraduate student? Yeah, I think the in general, Australian students would find the experience uh, a little more personal. Classes tend to be smaller. There's more encouragement for interaction in classes. I think those two things go hand in hand. And then the other thing that I'd say is that a lot of the value of your education, formally and informally, happens outside the classroom. In the residential context, in clubs and societies you're a part of, in terms of internships that you might get while you're a student. So I think, again, you know, admissions are holistic in the US. I think. One reason why that's a good idea is because the college experience is holistic too. It's not just how did you do in this specific subject. It's how are you doing more generally? How are you doing in your classes? Yes, but let's decenter that a little bit and have much more interaction. And then we're going to think more broadly about your growth outside the classroom. And I think that's a, that's a tremendous value add. And the United States has, I believe, somewhere around 4,000 different institutions providing two-year degrees and four-year degrees. And so Australian students have a big list to choose from. And, and oftentimes people are drawn to the sort of top schools in the country. Do you have an opinion if students, potential students, should use rankings alone or should they take other things into consideration as well? Rankings really matter. If you look at the rankings of colleges in the U.S., the places at the top of the rankings tend to be much smaller and they're also private. You know, the, the Ivy League is the best example of that, as you know. I think equally important is fit. Fit is personal. You can't read it off a ranking. I think understanding where you fit really matters. So let me give you two dimensions of that choice. One is... Do you want to be in a big American city as we are in Los Angeles or do you want to be, quote unquote, in a college town? And there, are, as you know, there are lots of wonderful universities in small towns in America that most people in Australia would never have heard of. That's an important decision, a sort of urban versus a, quote unquote, college town. And then the second dimension, I think, is this one that I've already alluded to, which is, are there professional schools that are providing undergraduate education within a university, or is it just liberal arts in the traditional sense? So to give you a, a California comparison, if you went to Stanford University in Northern California, 400 miles from where we are in LA today, and you wanted to study business as an undergraduate, you can't do it 
If you come to USC, you can study business. Why? Because the business school has an undergraduate program. So I think those would be the two dimensions for me. Do you want to be in a college town or do you like to be in a big urban environment? And second, do you want a pure liberal arts experience or do you want something that touches professional schools too? Let's dig a little bit deeper on campus life in the United States and talk a little bit about school pride. I understand that school pride is not the same kind of concept in Australia as it is in the United States. You've been uh, at some universities that have a lot of school pride in the United States. I think Duke is one of the universities in the United States that has arguably the most pride. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, what that kind of connection, what kind of that school pride means. Yeah, so let me let me give you two examples of that from my own life. And they do both revolve around sport. And of course, sport is incredibly important to Australians. So maybe this is a good thing to focus on. So when I went to Duke, which is in the middle of North Carolina, in a, in a quintessential college town, Durham, North Carolina, as, as people in the South say, uh, I met a guy in Sydney who gave me some advice. And his advice was buy basketball tickets. And I took that advice. And little did I know that Duke basketball is not only a big deal on campus, it's a massive deal around the entire United States. So you have all of these television crews basically camped out on your campus because the Duke basketball stadium called Cameron Indoor Stadium is arguably the number one venue for college basketball in America. And you can watch all those games in Australia. So when I was told to buy basketball tickets, that was really good advice because I got to see some incredible basketball. But I'm now at USC in the middle of Los Angeles, and I can almost see, literally, I can see outside my office where I'm sitting today, something called the LA Memorial Coliseum, where the Olympics have been held twice, and they will be held a third time here in 2028. The Memorial Coliseum is where the USC Trojans play football. So there is a 100,000-person football stadium in the middle of Los Angeles on my university's campus. And football Saturdays at USC are a massive event, not only for alumni and for all the people watching on TV, but for current students. And so the I think that the you know, sport's not the only example of this, but college spirit is an absolute reality in the United States. And again, it emphasizes the fact that when you go to college, you're doing much more than buying a set of classes. You're buying an entire experience, including the opportunity to watch world-class athletes uh, who, are, who are your fellow students. An amazing thing. Could you talk a little bit about Aside from sports, what are some of the other extracurricular activities that are available to students at U.S. campuses? Well, I think, the again, for Australians, the biggest difference is just how residential most universities and colleges are in the U.S. You know, if you think about certainly my experience uh, growing up in Canberra was I didn't think about, quote unquote, going away to university the logical thing for me to do was to drive 10 minutes from my home to the ANU because there was a great university in Canberra. Americans tend to go away to college and it's going away from your family. It's living with other students. It's having this 
broader set of experiences is an essential element of, of what you're doing. So, you know, I think it's great in Australia that all of the big cities have lots of universities and lots of local kids, you know, grow up in, in, in a suburb and then go to a university that's maybe five or 10 miles away from where they grew up. That's just different from the college experience in the US where literally everyone wants to go away to college. And again, I've used this word holistic a few times. I think it's really true. It's about the whole person. It's the whole experience. It's much more than the classes you take. It's who you live with, the clubs you join, the internship opportunities you get. That, that, that's the distinctive feature, I think. Couldn't agree more. I think for me personally, what I learned outside the classroom at college was uh, just as important as what I learned inside the classroom. I mentioned I was from a, from a small town in the United States, and it was really my first time living outside of that small town in the United States. And the internships that were available in Washington, D.C., and, and being involved in student government and so on and so forth was really, really something that helped set up my, my career and, and also helped me learn more about myself. Also a little bit about more about campus life and about university life and a little bit more on the academic side and support services. Could you talk a little bit about what kinds of support services are available for students uh, in the United States? I mean, for many, in many cases, it's their first time living away from home. So what kind of support do universities typically provide? They have to provide all services because, as you said, you, you're not living at home. You are living at the university campus. So food services, health services, uh, places to live, all of that stuff is just part and parcel of the residential experience. But I think particularly, again, the American private universities provide a lot of other student services that typically not as available in an Australian university. So everyone will have uh, an academic counselor who will help them navigate their way through the curriculum. Careers are very important. So we all have career centers and career advice, including generating internship opportunities for you while you're still a student. So I do think expanded student services is a, is a really distinctive feature of American higher ed. And the private universities tend to be more residential and tend to have more student services. Of course, that comes with a kicker, which is that their prices tend to be higher too. But I think, you know, what, I, what I'd say there, we haven't talked about cost yet. One thing that I just recommend to everybody in Australia is not to be put off by the sticker price of American higher education because there's just a lot more financial aid available in American universities than is the cases in Australia. You know, I, I think the Australian HEX system is a fantastic one. It's a really smart way to manage the cost of higher ed. But uh, as I said, don't be put off by the sticker price in the U.S. You'll find lots of ways to, to reduce the cost of college. You just have to dig a little bit deeper to find them. Yeah. No, thank you for bringing that up. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that and talk a little bit about some of the options. I went to a private university in the U.S., and very few people that I knew at the, at the university actually paid full tuition. There were a lot of different mechanisms, whether they were academic scholarships or whether they were, were some work available on campus. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what some of those options are for international students in the United States to help offset some of those costs. So American higher ed breaks down the support they give students into two categories, typically. One is very need-based. It's socioeconomic. Uh, it's about your family's uh, income and asset base. 
that tends to be more available to American students than to international students. But most American universities now have elaborate what they call scholarship programs, which aren't need-based and are about attracting different kinds of students to campus. And certainly I know at Penn and at USC, there are a lot of scholarships uh, for which international students uh, can apply and a whole bunch of scholarships that are only for international students. But look for the international scholarships because lots of universities have them uh, for, for different kinds of students. How common is it for international students to have part-time jobs while they're undergraduate students? Pretty common. Of course, I'm, I'm going to hesitate a little bit here because there are legal requirements and often it depends on your visa status. But the simple answer is there are a lot of work opportunities. You do have to be very careful about visa status, you know, more opportunities, less opportunities, depending on, on your visa situation. It's a good way to understand the country. And I, you know, I remember I was a doorman at a nightclub for a couple of summers when I was in the U.S. It allowed me to see real people in the American South. I, I loved it. And of course, they thought my accent was cute and interesting. So that worked well for me too. Yeah, for me, I, I had several part-time jobs when I was an undergrad. And, and one of the benefits, not, not just uh, the ability to have a little extra cash in the pocket, but also it really helped me with my time management. Because when I was living for the first time really by myself, you know, you're not in classes necessarily eight hours a day. But uh, it really helped me to sort of economize my time and focus with student activities or going to classes. So uh, it was something very useful to me as well. Let's turn to some fun kinds of questions, if, if that's okay. And we'll both take a stab at answering this. What college experiences or what university experiences when you were at Duke do you have that still stick with you right now? Well, I'll give you my favorite one, Jeff, and it's a basketball example. So when I was at Duke in the early 1980s, a long time ago now, Duke basketball actually was terrible, but the teams that came to play were incredible. So I will never forget watching Michael Jordan as a 19-year-old whack his shoulder on the backboard, maybe 40 feet from my seat in uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium at Duke. This was before Michael Jordan was the most famous athlete in the world, but he was already pretty good as a sophomore at, at UNC Chapel Hill, which is where he played. So I remember those experiences vividly. The other one that's always poignant for me was my first semester away. I came from, I'm a Canberra boy, I'd been living in Sydney, and now I'm in the middle of the deep south in the U.S., and the Thanksgiving holiday happens in November. What I didn't realize is that everyone leaves an American college town for Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a five-day holiday. And I was just going to be left on my own. And an American family took me in for Thanksgiving, which is why, even though I don't like turkey, it's by far my favorite American holiday because it was really when the generosity of American spirit was evident to me. A family... A family just looked at, <laughs> at my sad sackness that I was going to be stuck in a, on a university campus when no one was there and they took me in. And I, I'll never forget that. Ah, that's wonderful. Did you have any other sorts of like culture shock when you moved to the United States? Was there anything that sort of struck you as, wow, this is really different? Yeah, everything is different. We tend to think that common language 
means that the cultural differences aren't going to be there. I, I think it was Winston Churchill who said that the US and the UK were two countries divided by a common language. I, I think that's just more generally true that it's a fantastic thing, obviously, to be to be able to be understood, you know, even if we poke fun at our accents all the time. It's great to be understood, but the cultural values and the, and the way words are used are just so different. So I, I give you one example. I, I'm a big sports fan. The word to punt. In Australia, to punt means, I think, to bet on a horse race. In the US, to punt means not to decide something because you're playing football and instead of going for fourth down, you punt. So, you know, it's a very simple little word, but it means very different things in two countries. And I could give you literally hundreds of examples like that. When I moved to a country that culturally is very much different from the United States in terms of language and everything, it's sometimes easier because I have the assumption in my head that everything's going to be different. But moving to a country where the language is similar and I have that other sort of subconscious assumption that things are going to be more similar than they actually are. So I think that's really that's really good advice. I mean, for me, uh, my memories of, of being a student, one of the fun memories, I think it was my first or second year, there was like a talent show on campus. And I, I really don't have much sort of artistic talent. But uh, a couple of friends of mine, we, we had like a, I want to say a band, but it was, wasn't really a band. It was more of a joke than anything else. And, and it still sticks sort of vividly in my mind. And one of my proudest accomplishments was is that we were second place in the university talent show. Thankfully, that was not the time when people were recording things on their phones and taking pictures and so on and so forth. So that won't haunt me in the future. You touched on this as well. Being at an American university, there's a lot of personal interaction. I had really good personal interaction with my sort of uh, academic counselor. But uh, at the university, we also had an awards office. And when I was thinking about applying for a Fulbright, I met with someone at the awards office. They literally walked me through the entire process and helped me make the connections with professors at the university, with professors overseas, helped me to put together my application so that I could be competitive for a Fulbright. I think you just raised something we haven't talked about that's incredibly important. If I think about people I know in Australia and you ask them you know, about who they are, virtually no one is going to say where they went to uni as a sort of definition of who they are. They might talk about their high school or their town or whatever. It would never be their university. Whereas in the U.S., as you know, being part of an alumni network, it's a lifelong thing. And, and the reason I was thinking about that was your point about the fact that your college was interested in helping you take the next step after you graduated. It's absolutely true that American universities spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it leads to the fact that being part of the alumni community is a lifelong thing. USC, where I am today, there's something that everyone who's associated with USC, whether they're 17 or 70, knows, which is fight on and you raise two fingers in a V for victory way. That is the universal symbol of somebody who attended the university. And I don't think that exists for people who went to the ANU the way I did. So in closing, just one final question. If you were in a room right now, full of Australian students who were thinking about studying at a U.S. college, what is the one thing you would share with them? 
I'd say go for it, but try to do your homework because I do think fit is such an incredibly important issue. Australian universities, particularly given HEX and uh, tuition, are great, no question about it. But if you want the college experience, if you're thinking about becoming more international, if you potentially want to move to the U.S., coming to the U.S. as an undergraduate is just a fantastic thing to do. There's so much choice out there. Be as well informed as you can be. And I hope, I hope things like this podcast are helping people become better informed. Thank you, Dr. Garrett. And thank you very much for participating in our podcast series, Graduate in the U.S., I'll tell you, this has been a very enjoyable and enlightening conversation for me, too. It makes me wish that I were a high school senior again with a prospect of university in front of me and all that that has to offer. So thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Garrett. Thanks for listening to this episode of Graduate in the USA. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and share the show with a friend or high school student who you think is interested in doing their tertiary studies in the USA. On the next episode, hear from Education USA Branch Chief Anna Martz and former US Ambassador to Australia, Ambassador Blush. If you have any questions and want to get in touch with Education USA, search for Education USA Australia in your browser. I'm Samantha Jackson from Education USA Australia in Melbourne.